and welcome to Woodhouse Keeping, a show about Woodhouse PG. We take one book and give it a long look, then move on chronologically. Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Woodhouse Keeping, the podcast where I, Ian Coburn, look at the books of the humorous author P.G. Woodhouse in chronological order. The P.G. in P.G. Woodhouse stands for Pelham Grenville, usually shortened to Plum. Today's episode will be discussing the public school novel The Head of Kays, for which I'll be joined by my elder brother Josh Coburn. I shared my early Woodhouse journey with Josh in our childhood. We both spent a lot of our pocket money on new copies of Woodhouse books. At the time, Penguin were keeping most of his works in print, particularly the non-series standalone novels. Between us, we amassed quite a collection, which we still have. I now have no idea which were bought by me and which were bought by my brother, but we always shared them, and Josh has generously allowed me custody of most of them for the time being, which will be extremely useful for the podcast. So we'll be discussing The Head of Kays, a book we both read as children. There's going to be some spoilers. If this is your first episode of the podcast, or if you haven't read the book, I should warn you that I'm going to assume you have a familiarity with the tropes and terminology of English public schools of the early 20th century. Houses, housemasters, heads of house, prefects, fags and fagging. If you don't, hopefully you'll soon pick it up. What I've perhaps been neglecting to mention in these intros is that this is going to be quite a long-term project, because Woodhouse wrote well over a hundred books, if you include posthumous works. So if you're wondering when I'm going to get to a book in the Jeeves or the Blanding series, the honest answer is not for a while. It depends how I break it down, but I'm estimating that I'll cover the first Blanding's Castle novel in episode 24, and Bertie and Jeeves' first appearance in The Man with Two Left Feet in episode 27, and the first proper Jeeves stories in My Man Jeeves in episode 29. So if I continue to put them out at a rate of roughly one a month, it'll be a couple of years before we get to those books. If you don't care about Jeeves or Blandings particularly, but just want to know when there'll be a non-school story, any non-school story, you're in luck. The next episode will be about his first novel for a general audience, Love Among the Chickens, which is also the first book with the recurring character Eucridge, unless I decide to squeeze in the episode about the Kid Brady stories first, which are also for an adult audience. But I'm in this for the long haul, and I hope I'll manage to persuade at least some of you that these early works are worthy of your attention. Today's book is going to be another in the long series of public school novels with which Woodhouse opened his career. They did very well, so naturally he kept producing them, even while he was constantly working on other writing as well that would eventually break him out of the boys' books ghetto. You'll probably hear from the changes in the sound quality that part of what follows is from my Zoom conversation with Josh, and part of it is other bits I recorded later, on my own and at my leisure. Josh, can you tell me what P.G. Woodhouse means to you? And when you first came across him? Yes. Well, I'm always slightly uh, concerned about doing something with who has better recollection of the past than I have. So I'm not 100% sure that I'm going to say, oh, I first remember this and then you're going to correct me. But I think I was reading P.G. Woodhouse from my early teens. I do remember one of these embarrassing memories that sticks with you telling our Uncle Bobby when he said that he collected Woodhouse 
books that there were lots in Waterstones or no W H Smiths if if he wanted to go and check them out there, not realizing that he was collecting first editions, and that I, I think I wouldn't have made that mistake at sort of fifteen or sixteen. I must have been younger than that. That's hilarious. Do you have a favourite P.G. Woodhouse book or a favourite character? I I think slightly controversially tend to prefer not the Blandings books and not the Jeeves and Wooster books, but the standalone romantic stories because the characters aren't quite so toe-curlingly embarrassing. Obviously, uh, Wooster is hilarious, but sometimes it does makes me cringe inside. And this is probably even more heretical, but I actually really enjoyed the Sebastian Falk's Jeeves and Wooster book because at least Wooster got a nice romantic happy ending. Whereas in the Woodhouse books, he gets a happy ending, but it's not the traditional romantic happy ending. It's the absence of romance happy ending that he's safe from brides and aunts. Well, he didn't want to kill the goose that uh, laid the golden egg, did he? If he'd married off Worcester, he wouldn't be able to write about him at all, or he'd have to completely rethink the formula. Whereas Sebastian Foulkes, knowing that that was the only book he was going to write about Jeeves and Worcester, he was at liberty to do what he liked. But yeah, I enjoyed that book too. It's funny Uh what you say about not liking to be embarrassed by characters, because my wife thinks it hilarious and charming that I squirm at TV comedies where embarrassing situations occur, like Frasier. I can't even watch TV comedies because the embarrassment is too much and I can't bear it. I barely watch TV. Either things embarrass me too much or things are too horrible, you know, murders and rapes and horrible stuff. I don't Mm. want that. So I just don't watch TV. But it's a sign of how good Woodhouse's writing is that I will still read his Jeeves books, knowing that I will have to cope with the toe-curling embarrassment. Well, I get through it on TV by reminding myself that none of it is real. Unless, of course, it is real. It's closely based on a true story. And, well, in a Woodhouse book, you can be sure everything is going to be all right in the end, of course. You can, yes. So any favourite novel or short story? I think Summer Moonshine might be my favourite. Oh, unusual choice. Yeah. I think that book is most famous for having a genuinely awful character in it. Yes. Uh, I'm I'm hoping I'm talking about the right book. It's a, the Princess Von and Zoo Dwornitzek, is it? Yes. I just think that Joe Van Ringham is a appealing hero. And I like that it has a touch more... I mean, obviously, we don't want Woodhouse doing the gritty real-life stuff, but there's a, a touch more realism to that than to some other ones. Mm. But you, I must... Uh say for the benefit of our listeners who are probably dumbfounded at the moment it's very unusual for anyone to want realism from a Woodhouse book so it's quite refreshing to me to hear you come out and say that well yes it's, it's not I mean I, I really like Smith in the City for the same reason mm. it's completely unrealistic but it's not completely divorced from reality and I do like that but I'm perfectly mm. happy to be whooshed away into Woodhouse's magical world, which has no relation to reality as well. Do you remember when you first read The Head of Kays, the book we'll be discussing today? Well, I, it might have been very early on. I think 
that my general association of, of Woodhouse was with our dad's side of the family. But I'm pretty sure I, we were given head of case by um, my mum's dad, amongst lots of other public school books. And I think I was probably reading it simultaneously with other P.G. Woodhouse books, more classic P.G. Woodhouse books, without even really taking in that it was by the same author. Right. Yes, we did have this one. Um, I was going to say, we got quite a lot of old public school stories from our granddad. And this one is the 1910 edition of Head of K's. And it's in very poor condition now, I'm afraid. So this would have been the first school story I read by P.G. Woodhouse. And I have to say, at the time, I didn't like it as much as some of the other school stories that we got from our granddad. There's two I particularly remember enjoying by R.A.H. Goodyear, The Boys of Castlecliff School, and Alfred Judd Toddy scores again. And I say this because I read an extraordinary remark in a book about Woodhouse, and it said, Why are the school stories of P.G. Woodhouse still read while those of R.A.H. Goodyear are forgotten? And I thought that was a stupid question because... If the school stories of P.G. Woodhouse are read, if we accept that premise, then obviously it's because he went on to become a famous author for adults, whereas those other authors didn't. Both those other books I mentioned came a lot later, so they were probably heavily influenced by P.G. Woodhouse. Certainly, Alfred Judd, his books are written in a much more overtly humorous tone, and I would have thought he was influenced by P.G. Woodhouse's later books as well as his school books. Mm. Head of Case was written in 1904. Woodhouse had just made his first trip to America for five weeks and found when he got back that as someone who had seen America, his stock had risen and he was able to charge more for his work. In 1904, anyone in the London writing world who had been to America was regarded with awe. My income rose like a rocketing pheasant. He was made editor of the By the Way column in the Globe newspaper, to which he was previously only a mere contributor, on the resignation of the editor Harold Begbie. He was regularly in Punch magazine, Vanity Fair and other publications, and he had his first lyric performed on the London stage in the musical farce Sergeant Brew, a song called Put Me in My Little Cell, from the point of view of a criminal who wants to be back in jail. Put me in my little cell Send me off to sleep Leave, oh, leave a warder Leave a warder marching at the door Call me in the morning Bring me breakfast while I wait As you used to do when I was in before When I was in before So The Head of K's is the sixth book by P.G. Woodhouse. It was first serialised in The Captain from October 1904 to March 1905. It was published in book form in October 1905 by his regular publishers A&C Black. Dedication. The book is dedicated to his father Ernest, a more simpatico figure than his mother, we are led to believe by the biographers. We start the book at the end of the summer term in Eccleton, a school Woodhouse invented and used for the first time in this story, and only used once more in a completely unrelated short story. 
we open in between days at the final cricket house match between Blackburn's house and Kay's house. We are in the study of the head boy of Blackburn's, Jimmy Silver, and his friend Kennedy. I know of no game more fitting than the age-old game of cricket. It has honour, it has character, and is British. Kennedy is arguably the main character of the book, although he has to cede that role for large stretches at a time. He's the protagonist, isn't he? Yes, but we'll see later that we go away and follow somebody else for several chapters and come back to him later. But yeah, I, overall, he's the protagonist. And it says that his chief characteristics were solidity and an infinite capacity for taking pains. Which is more or less the definition of genius, according to Thomas Carlyle. Whereas Jimmy Silver is the obligatory comedian. There's one of these in every book. Chartres, Marriott. And they're never the main character. They're always like the foil to the main character. And we're getting closer and closer to a Smith character here, aren't we? Yes. Um, Although Silver, I feel, is not nearly as funny as he thinks he is. (laughs) He likes to specifically talk as if he's in a melodrama. And this is pointed out, it says, In the melodramatic voice he was in the habit of using whenever he wished to conceal the fact that he was speaking seriously. So he uses that especially when he feels like exposing his serious or sentimental side. And he says things like, I will bead this tyrant to his face. That sort of thing. So they're in Blackburn's house and they've had the first day of the cricket and it's not going well for them on account of the head of K's, Fenn who is an all-round ace at cricket. And as Silver and Kennedy discuss the game, the point is made repeatedly that Kays are a one-man team. After him, the tale started. Yes. Is that a quote, or is that you displaying some unusual cricketing knowledge? That's a quote. Norman Murphy, the author, has proposed N.A. Knox as the model for Fenn. He was at Dulwich College. He overlapped with Woodhouse. He was in the cricket team in Woodhouse's last year. And Woodhouse continued to drop in at Dulwich College after he left. He used to go at weekends and keep up with friends. And he used to take his notebook and make notes for stories. And in those days, Knox was quite the celebrity at the school. This is a note Woodhouse made in his notebook. N.A. Knox got put into Everett's house because Everett knew his people. Hates it. It spoils his whole life at school. Nobody to talk to or pal up with. And not only in the house cricket games, but in the school first 11, Knox was called a one-man team. Here's another note. N.A. Knox, the one man in a one-man team, confesses to me how sick he is of bowling on and on throughout the term, with chaps dropping his catches. Knox later played for Surrey in England and was said to be the fastest bowler in county cricket at the time. Woodhouse mentioned him by name in the novel Mike and also Ghost wrote an article for him for the Daily Mail about fast bowling. Anyway, another boy is playing a piano rag with an unfortunate name. And it's mentioned that Fenn is also an accomplished musician. Again, like N.A. Knox, who was a singer. And it's also mentioned that Fenn is going to play piano at the school concert. Then Kennedy goes to talk to Fenn, who is his friend, and Fenn's fed up of being at Kay's and having to deal with Mr. Kay himself, who is the interfering housemaster, who's always criticising him and undermining his authority in front of the junior boys, thus making it impossible for him to do his job of keeping the house in order. 
is another quote. He was extremely fussy, and fussiness, with the possible exceptions of homicidal mania and a taste for arson, is quite the worst characteristic it is possible for a housemaster to possess. Yes, you wonder whether the Princess Von and Zoo Dwornetsek might have been, actually been a better housemaster than Mr. K. Woodhouse is trying to paint a picture of someone who is not a bad person, but just the wrong person for the job. Wholly unsuited for the job, yes. Yeah, because he... Doesn't like sport, primarily. Yes, right. <laughs> but also, yes, it has other things. But the fact that he doesn't like sport is the unforgivable uh, aspect of it. Mm. As they are talking, Mr. K comes out and rebukes Fenn for being outside the house so late and tries to rebuke Kennedy too. But Kennedy talks back to him, saying that his housemaster, Blackburn, has no objection to his prefects having a stroll before lockup. Fenn is to play against Middlesex in the summer holidays, it's mentioned, and some of the players here will be facing are mentioned, including Pelham Warner, who at the time was athletics editor for The Captain, the very magazine the story is appearing in. And also was commonly known as Plum. Yes, exactly, like Pelham Woodhouse. They were both called Plum. In sight case, there's a big kerfuffle going on with the younger boys, Fenn comes in to try to put a stop to it, but as he is that day's sporting hero, they all start cheering him, and at that point, Mr K comes in and publicly accuses Fenn of being unable to keep order. Fenn is furious, follows Mr K out, and they have an argument, which ultimately leads to K giving Fenn what they call extra, and what we would call detention, the next day, which means he's kept until four and misses most of the day's cricket. This is not a problem as far as Mr K is concerned, because he has no interest whatever in the match or any other sporting matter. Yes, he's not aware of it. He's not deliberately trying to stop Fenn play cricket. I I don't actually think he misses that much of the day. I think the cricket starts at three, so he's only missing an hour. but, But that hour is pretty critical for the fortunes of the match. He runs out, doesn't he, in his normal school clothes. He doesn't even change except for his shoes. He's not got his pads on. And he excels himself. The drama is built up, but it's just too late and they lose by seven runs. And all of the boys in K's are absolutely furious and in open mutiny against Mr K for spoiling their victory against the much more fancied Blackburns. K completely oblivious to his unpopularity or the reasons of it, as we said. Yes, I think he just um, strikes that off as another failure of fens to keep control of his house there's the school concert then which is conducted by one of the masters mr mulholland but mr mulholland is injured and has had to step aside and mr k is going to take his place and there's another note woodhouse made about na knox and just to be clear for anyone who's getting confused about all the names that we're throwing out fen is the fictional character and knox is the actual real person who Fenn is based on. Here's Woodhouse's note to himself. Knox has row with Dalton, the music master at Dulwich. He cuts choir practice because he has to look after Nets, cricket practice. Dalton comes up and says, it's all off about solos at the concert. Knox scratches his name off singing competition list, which he had won before. Might make this the reason of concert row in the head of the house. The chap's house, hearing why he is not singing at the concert, determined to wreck success of same and do so. The head of house being the working title of head of case. Yes. 
So that shows that even at this stage, it was taking Woodhouse a long time to work his plots into their ultimate order. He would start with a basic idea and then he would muck about with it until he'd increase the drama. So he's thinking of having Fenn not turn up at the concert at all, and that caused the uproar at the concert. But instead, he decides to have Fenn play at the concert, but not behave as he is expected. But I think the book is actually quite tightly plotted. Everything that happens in the book happens for a reason in advancing the plot. Yes, that's true. He's getting better at that, I think. Fenn at first refuses to play at the concert if Kay is going to be conducting, but in the end he's persuaded to play. And he says to to Jimmy Silver, You'd better turn up. I think you'll enjoy it. So he's scheming to do something to express his defiance. And Silver says, There's going to be a hot time in the old town tonight. There'll be a hot time in old town. The piece Fenn plays is Moonlight Sonata, which is the piece that Woodhouse's elder brother Armin played at the 1899 school concert. Armin had already graduated by then. He came back to play it as a guest performance. And Fenn, who is the hero of the day, the crowd is already very rowdy. They start screaming for an encore. And Fenn obliges by playing that ragtime song that was mentioned earlier with the unfortunate name, which is a real piece of music. Yes, I listened to it uh, as part of my preparation for for this podcast. It's not the most... I I mean, I can't really imagine it having the same effect of, like, rock around the clock of getting people to uh, dart slashing seats in the uh, audience. But I guess (laughs) if if it's competing with the Moonlight Sonata, then it's pretty... uh... Yeah, it's context, isn't it, to suddenly hear someone play a tune, a popular tune basically, the pop music of the day. There's absolute pandemonium and this again is influenced by something that happened in real life, again discovered by Norman Murphy. I just got this book by Norman Murphy called The Woodhouse Handbook and I wish I'd had it before I started recording any of these episodes because it's (laughs) full of little gems like this. The Gallery Boys disrupted the 1900 Dulwich concert in just this way. Gilks, the headmaster, had to stop the performance to restore order, but stamping resumed when the encore was played. The same thing happened in 1901 and again in 1902. You would think that Gilks might have thought that something might happen in 1901 and 1902 and might have taken some action to prevent it happening. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder what you would do other than simply cancel the concert. Did the concert not happen in 1903 or... Had they finally managed a way to uh, stop people stamping their way through the encores? (laughs) As to that, I have no information. But clearly, this stuck with Woodhouse, and this was a big scene. He he likes to have these big scenes that the book sort of revolves around, and this is the first one. It's also a sort of recurring thing in lots of his novels, is a public performance where things go pretty badly wrong is often a crucial plot device as well as an opportunity for for humour in his book. Yes, Gussie's speech immediately comes to mind in Righto Jeeves. Yes. Recurring motifs, recurring motifs. We can't get away from those recurring motifs. The original serialisation of this in The Captain, the cliffhanger of the first episode, comes at this point where we're wondering what Fenn's punishment is going to be for all this when a term resumes in the winter term. So the next day, 
nothing is really said about the concert. It's the last day of school and it's the school prizes. And the prizes are presented by the Bishop of Rumtifu, which is a character from a comic poem by Woodhouse's hero, W.S. Gilbert. So I don't know how many of his readers would have noticed that and thought, hey, that's a character from a comic poem. This is ridiculous. I wonder if he was taking his chances at destroying people's suspension of disbelief. Gilbert was a very, very popular performer, wasn't he? I mean, I think that it's yes. not something that he was be hoping would have gone over the heads of his audience. Yeah, surely. well, there's another reference a little later that suggests that he was getting quite playful and not minding if he threw in the odd outlandish reference. Yeah. School prizes dispensed with. The next thing that happens is that members of the school training corps go off to summer camp at Aldershot, and it's, again, from the point of view of Kennedy and Silver. Jimmy Silver is a veteran, but it's Kennedy's first time, so Silver explains to him what happens, and Kennedy asks him if there's ever any ragging done at camp, i.e. pranks, because he's aware that there's a contingent from Kays, and Kays are known to be a very unruly house. And Silver replies that sometimes there have been cases of the ropes of tents being loosened in the night. Do you have anything much to say about the camp scenes? Other than it made me extremely glad that I was not a cadet at the <laughs> turn of the 20th century. It sounded horrendous. I don't um, think I'd like to be at a, one at any time. <laughs> no, but I do suspect that nowadays they'd have to put a bit more into entertaining people in order to get people to turn up, whereas it seemed pretty hardcore you know, having to get up at half past four and half past five and do an awful lot of drilling, etc., before you got to spend an afternoon hanging around the reservoir. Yeah, well, Silver seems to think that making new friends is enough of a incentive and then seeing the same old friends every year. Well, I guess if the idea of public schools was to network with other people from public schools who were going to be the elite in the next generation, then Silver certainly seems to be uh, networking successfully. Mm. And then we're introduced to some of the said case contingent, including Silver's younger brother, Billy, Billy's enemy, Wren, and the older boys, Walton and Perry, who are a bad lot. And Walton and Perry are having a secret smoke when they decide to have a try at the rope loosening lark at the guard's tent. And here's that other... Um, Peculiar little reference I mentioned. The sentry on duty is Private Jones of St. Asterisks. St. Asterisks is an unlikely name for a school, but it's a name that Woodhouse had been using for some of his humorous school stories. Two early stories in the public school magazine starring the detective Burdock Rose and his much smarter friend Watsing, which are among Woodhouse's many Sherlock Holmes spoofs and also in a 1903 punch story where the boys are bribed to attend classes with tobacco and cigars. But I think this is the first mention of St. Asterisks in one of his serious stories. Mm. Anyway, Walton and Perry rugby tackle Jones of St. Asterisks, throw him in the ditch and loose the ropes of the guard tent. And the next day, Kennedy thinks he's going to have a try at solving the mystery Sherlock Holmes style, or Burdock Rue style. Silver says... Tell me your dreadful tale. Conceal nothing. Spare me not. In fact, say on. I've had a talk with the chap who was sentry that night, began Kennedy. 
Astounding revelations by our special correspondent, murmured Silver. You might listen. I am listening. Why don't you begin? All this hesitation strikes me as suspicious. Get on with your shady story. You remember the sentry was upset, very upset. Somebody collared him from behind and upset him into the ditch. They went in together and the other man sat on his head. A touching picture. Proceed, friend. They rolled about a bit and this sentry chap swears he scratched the man. It was just after that that the man sat on his head. Jones says he was a big chap, strong and heavy. He was in a position to judge anyhow. Of course, he didn't mean to scratch him. He was rather keen on having that understood. But his fingers came up against the fellow's cheek as he was falling. So you see, we've only got to look for a man with a scratch on his cheek. It was the right cheek, Jones was almost certain. I don't see what you're laughing at. And Silver points out that you can't really just look at everyone's face for scratches and accuse them. But Kennedy kind of does that anyway. He notices that... Walton has a scratch on his face and he asks him where he got it and Walton of course makes up some story but they both size each other up as a potential future enemy and Kennedy is in any case unwilling to publicly accuse Walton of the crime but for the sake of the good name of the school he wisely notes that practical jokers are seldom popular until they've been dead about a hundred years or so. On the final night at camp Kennedy himself is on sentry duty he sees an intruder crossing the ditch who he tries to accost but the intruder charges and knocks him down and makes his getaway later in the story the mystery assailant is confirmed to be Walton and um, that's the end of the camp section of the book and then we're on to the winter term when did you arrive? asked Silver after the conclusion of the first outbreak of holiday talk I've only just come seen Blackburn yet? No, I was thinking of going up after I'd got this place done properly. Jimmy Silver ran his eye over the room. I haven't started mine yet, he said. You're such an energetic man. Now, are all those books in their proper places? Yes, said Kennedy. Sure? Yes. How about the pictures? Got them up? All but this lot here. Shan't be a second. There you are. How's that for effect? Not bad. Got all your photographs in their places? Yes. Then, said Jimmy Silver calmly, you'd better start now to pack them all up again. And why, my son? Because you are no longer a Blackburnite. That's what. Kennedy stared. I've just had the whole yarn from Blackburn, continued Jimmy Silver. Our dear old pal, Mr. K, wanting somebody in his house capable of keeping order by way of a change, has gone to the old man and borrowed you. So you're head of K's now. There's an honour for you. And that's the cliffhanger of part two of the serialisation in The Captain. It's an absolutely horrendous behaviour by Silver, by the way. I mean, I know that he's, again, using melodrama and humour to cover the fact that he's deeply moved, but still... That is not the dumb thing. Yeah, he says to Kennedy that it needn't affect their friendship. They can see each other still as often as they did before. And it says, He spoke shamefacedly, as was his habit whenever he was serious. He liked Kennedy better than anyone he knew and hated to show his feelings. Anything remotely connected with sentiment made him uncomfortable. And you're tempted to say, like character, like author, probably. <laughs> yes. Because... Uh, Silver is clearly probably the cleverest person in the book, but he 
repeatedly hides that under sort of, I would like a flagon of your finest ale type humour and simply uh, just being completely seemingly indifferent to the actual feelings of the other people in the book. Yeah, but I think that Kennedy and Fenn understand him. They, they know that he's a good sort underneath. Sure. Um, but what's it all about? What made Kay want a man? Why won't Fenn do? And why me? Well, it's easy to see why they chose you. They reflected that you'd had the advantage of being in Blackburns with me and seeing how a house really should be run. Kay wants to head for his house. Off he goes to the old man. Look here, he says. I want somebody shunted into my happy home or it'll bust up. And it's no good trying to put me off with an inferior article because I won't have it. It must be someone who's been trained from youth up by silver. Then, says the old man reflectively, you can't do better than take Kennedy. I happen to know that Silver has spent years in showing him the straight and narrow path. You take Kennedy. All right, says Kay. I always thought Kennedy a bit of an ass myself, but if he's studied under Silver, he ought to know how to manage a house. I'll take him, advise our Mr. Blackburn to that effect, and ask him to deliver the goods at his earliest convenience. Adieu, messmate, adieu. And there you are. That's how it was. I think that's quite funny. <laughs> For the benefit of the tape, I was expressing scepticism. Kennedy is immediately very unpopular in his new house, naturally, because Fenn was the popular hero and Kennedy has replaced him. Anyone who has been placed into any organisation in order to lick it into shape is unlikely to be popular with the people who are to be licked into shape. Good point. And he also gets off on the wrong foot with Mr K, as you might expect. So he looks to try and get Fenn on side to help him. Fenn assures him of his good wishes, but flatly refuses to help him in any way. Washes his hands of the whole affair. And Kennedy takes umbrage and storms out, and their friendship is at an end for the time being. The boys show their resentment at Kennedy by hooting at him as he passes, and he responds by caning them. So they stop doing that. Instead... When they want leave to go out of bounds, they apply to Fenn instead of Kennedy, as if Fenn was still head of K's. Fenn responds by caning them, so they stop doing that. But unfortunately for their friendship, Kennedy doesn't realise that Fenn is doing this. Wren, the younger boy who was at camp earlier, attempts to stage a revolt against Kennedy, but Billy Silver puts a stop to it, not because he likes Kennedy, but because he hates Wren. He had no particular regard for Kennedy. The fact that he was a friend of his brother's was no recommendation. There existed between the two Silvers that feeling which generally exists between an elder and a much younger brother at the same school. Each thought the other a bit of an idiot, and though equal to tolerating him personally, was hanged if he was going to do the same by his friends. And I wonder if that's a reflection of school days of Armin Woodhouse and his younger brother, Pelham. Maybe. Kennedy and Silver arrange a rugby friendly between Kays and Blackburns, but the Kays team refuse to show up. Kennedy finds out that Walton, he of the misdemeanours at the camp, is the ringleader of this mutiny. Kennedy confronts Walton and they have it out in a private boxing match, umpired by Jimmy Silver. Boxing. That's the cliffhanger for the third instalment in the original serialisation as the boxing match begins.
which so much depends on because if starters, if anyone finds out about it, they'll both be expelled. Basically, it would be impossible for Kennedy to maintain control of his house if he wasn't able to physically beat Walton in a fight. It seems to be very similar to walruses or kangaroos, where the alpha male has to be able to beat up any challenges to him in order to maintain the hierarchy in the, the colony. Mm. And it's just one of the most striking things about the head of K's, I find, is how much violence is in there. People are always fighting, you mm. know, and there's so many euphemisms, you know, giving someone the warmest 10 minutes they've ever had, giving them a dickens of a time, giving mm. them beans, all are ways of saying beating people up because that is crucial to maintaining discipline and hierarchy in the, the house. Yes, it's very sad to a, a modern perspective. Yes. The other thing is not only does he have to beat Walton, but he has to beat him so decisively that Walton can't lie about it later. Like Walton can't go and say, well, actually, I beat him if he's clearly visibly being thrashed. <laughs> yeah. In the match, Walton fights dirty and con continuing to fight after time has been called. And Kennedy hits his head on an iron bed. But of course, he gets up. And even though he's dizzy, he still manages to beat Walton. Thankfully, he hits the back of his head rather than any visible part of his face, which would have been a disaster. Hmm. It is astonishing what power a boxer who has learnt the art carefully has of automatic fighting. The expert gentleman who fights under the pseudonym of Kid McCoy once informed the present writer that in one of his fights he was knocked down by such a severe hit that he remembered nothing further, and it was only on reading the paper next morning that he found, to his surprise, that he had fought four more rounds after the blow and won the battle handsomely on points. This book was written in 1904, just after Woodhouse's first trip to America, to New York, where he had indeed interviewed Kid McCoy and got loads of material that he later used in the Kid Brady stories and in Adventures of Sally. Anyway, Kennedy fortunately wins the match with no visible marks to show for it. And the rugby friendly with Blackburns is rescheduled for the very next day and all the teams show up with the exception of Walton, who's too worse for wear. Now it's talking about the general state of the house in terms of behaviour, and the implication is he's staunched the worst of the rebellion, but really it's no better off than it was at the start of the book when Fenn was also failing to keep order. Then a new element of the plot is introduced, where, course, yeah. where Fenn becomes the main character, for a few chapters, or at least he's our point of view character. Fenn gets a letter from his elder brother inviting him to go and see a play that his elder brother has written, which is going to have an out-of-town tryout in the town. But Fenn would have to break bounds, and he would be unable to get permission to do this, so he would definitely have to sneak out in order to watch this play. This is a way of Woodhouse incorporating one of his main interests at the time. He was moving very much in theatrical circles and he just had his first lyric performed on stage. And the character in the book, Mr Higgs, the theatrical impresario, is probably based on Seymour Hicks, actor, 
musical performer, playwright and producer, who in 1906 put on a play with some more of Woodhouse's lyrics. If you want to see a thrilling sight, go to the park on Sunday. Just to be clear, that was a clip of Seymour Hicks singing, but not singing a P.G. Woodhouse song on this occasion. Seymour Hicks was a massive star. I've just been reading a little bit about him in Bob Stanley's history of early pop music. In America, he was known as Steel More Tricks because he was always lifting songs from American musicals and using them in Britain. He was also mentioned in the previous Woodhouse novel, The Gold Bat, as one of the celebrity photographs that got vandalised. Also, Woodhouse had written about a boy breaking bounds in order to watch a play before in the short story. Author! So Fenn sneaks out to watch the play, but when he's at the play, he spots Kay and two other masters and gets the wind up and runs away. It might seem like I've built up the theatrical element of the novel only to dismiss it in a few words when it comes to describing the plot. In terms of the plot, all you really need to know is what I've said. But in terms of the flavour, the colour of the novel, there's quite a bit of time spent describing the theatre, the backstage, and all that sort of thing. So Fenn has seen the masters in the theatre and made a run for it. But it's a foggy night and he gets lost. He asks someone for directions who steals his pocket watch. He runs after the thief, trips, splashes into somebody helps them up, helps them back into their house, and then they send him on their way and slam the door in his face and lock the door, at which point he realises he's lost his school cap with his name in it. And so he hammers on the door, asking for his cap, but there's no answer. So he's in a pretty sorry state at the time. He had lost his watch. His cap with his name in it was in the hands of an evil old man who evidently bore him a grudge, and he had to run the gauntlet of three housemasters to get to bed via a study window. If Fenn could have known at this point that his adventures were only beginning, that what had taken place already was but as the overture to a drama, it is possible he would have thrown up the sponge for good and all, entered Kay's by way of the front door, after knocking up the entire household, and remarked in answer to his housemaster's excited questions, Enough! Enough! I am a victim of fate, a toad beneath the harrow. Sack me tomorrow if you like, but for goodness sake let me get quietly to bed now. That sort of uh, prepares us that more excitement is in store. It's, it's a kind of device to keep us reading, I suppose. It, it interests me about the things that they do seemingly routinely that would get them expelled, like going out overnight after lockup, like the boxing match. And I don't know whether, would that actually have got them expelled at the time? Because they seem to take on things that would get them expelled with quite a blasé attitude. Obviously, Fenn is pretty fed up. I think it's justified uh, that Woodhouse sets the scene saying he's past caring at this point. Indeed. But, you know, the, the boxing match between Kennedy and Walton, is it really worth Kennedy risking being expelled for? But then I don't know what would be the consequences of expulsion. Would he just end up at another school next term? Or would there actually be significant consequences to his life if he got caught boxing with Walton? Because there was a high possibility that he might have been. I don't know. This is tricky because you don't know how much Woodhouse is putting in to increase the drama. Like, oh, this could result in expulsion. Maybe it wouldn't. We don't know. 
and maybe yeah. they wouldn't know maybe they're just like have to bear the worst in mind but in that case kennedy said well this is a risk i have to take because it's the only way i can get on top of this situation yes it, it was probably one of those things that went into a gray area where if the headmaster wanted to get rid of you they probably could but if they wanted to keep a promising boy like kennedy at the school they would find a way to do it even mm. if sadly walton had to go and often woodhouse's headmasters are quite benevolent figures which i think reflects the respect he had for his own headmaster a de scalier section i think in this conversation, we didn't emphasise enough that a writer is always trying to create drama and jeopardy, tension and excitement in their stories. And the reason schoolboys in these books might break more rules than they ought is the same reason an action hero and a thriller might jump across buildings more than they really ought. Although Woodhouse was known for his realism in his school stories, Perhaps he was just making it just a little bit more dangerous than real life. Or perhaps, I can't say, because I wasn't there. Maybe people just did take more risks in those days. Back to the conversation. Then he's almost discovered by the three masters on the way home, but fortunately they think it's a cat. And then Fen finally gets to his window, his study window that he purposefully left open, and finds it shut Da, da, da. And there we have the cliffhanger of part four. Then eventually finds an open window and climbs in, but he makes a noise and Kay comes running. Mr Kay's talents as a marksman were in all probability limited to picking off sitting haystacks. But Kay was particularly concerned, wasn't he, because there'd been some other burglaries on school property before this night? Yes. Fen manages to get into his room just in time. He pretends he's only just got dressed in order to come and help Mr K and see what the fuss is about. K tells him off for leaving his window open. Why, somebody might have got in through it. Fen thought it not at all unlikely. The coincidence of a real burglar marauding at the same time as a schoolboy on a slightly less criminal nighttime sortie is reminiscent of a similar situation in The Pot Hunters when a boy was trying to get to his examination notes at the same time an adult was stealing the trophies. And here again, a trophy is stolen in this case to Fenn's own sprinting trophy, because he's good at sprinting too, did we mention? And it recurs in multiple later Woodhouse novels as well. There's often uh, nocturnal marauders, legal and illegal, in his stories. Yep. Well, he hit the ground running, didn't he, with that theme? Recurring motifs, recurring motifs. We can't get away from those recurring motifs. There had previously been a burglary at the schoolhouse, i.e. the headmaster's house, and now there'd been one at case two. To the disgust of the schoolhouse fags, to whom the episode seemed in the nature of an infringement of copyright, because they'd been enjoying boasting about how their house had been robbed. It's mentioned that Jimmy Silver had been urging Fend to mend his friendship with Kennedy and join forces to improve the house. You go about trying to look like a Christian martyr. I don't, said Fenn indignantly. Well, like a stuffed frog then. It's all the same to me. Fenn goes back to the house where he lost his cap to try and retrieve it, but is met with defiance. And there's a very sinister line here, I thought. It would not be the first time he had taken on a gentleman of the same class in a similar type of conversation. 
There's a sense there of outright class hatred that Fenn has had occasion to beat up lower class people before and he'd happily do it again. Fenn gives up and sees Ren out without leave. Fenn says nothing. Ren decides he might as well be hanged for a sheep as a lamb, as it says. He makes a bit of a day of it until he tries his luck too far and is seen by Kennedy too, who later summons him to his study for punishment. Wren, at Walton's advice, tells Kennedy he had got leave from Fenn, figuring that because Kennedy and Fenn are not speaking, this lie will go unchallenged. Kennedy does believe Wren's story, but beats him anyway for not coming to him rather than Fenn for leave. So it doesn't do Wren any good, but it does make Kennedy believe Fenn has been in the habit of granting people leave, when of course the reverse is true, he had been caning anyone who tried asking him. This turns out to be a blessing in disguise, however, Maybe it's a blessing that's in disguise. Because it causes Kennedy to confront Fenn directly. And there's a good bit here, I thought. There is nothing more pleasant than to be accused to your face of something which you can deny on the spot with an easy conscience. It is like getting a very loose ball at cricket. Fenn felt almost friendly towards Kennedy. Because all he has to do is say, no, that never happened. He was lying to you. So... It looks like Fenn and Kennedy are on their way to mending their friendship when they realise that they've been misjudging each other. But just as things are looking rosy, there's another cliffhanger. Fenn's fag shows up and brings with him Fenn's missing cap and says the headmaster wants to see him. And Fenn thinks, oh, I've been rumbled. For fans of the treatment of butlers in the works of Woodhouse, there's a little treat here. headmaster says good evening mr fenn this way sir those were his actual words fenn had not known for certain until now that he could talk on previous occasions their conversations had been limited to is the headmaster in from fenn and a stately inclination of the head from watson the man was getting a positive babbler similar to what happened in the pot hunters a detective has been at work off screen and has delivered the goods in this case, retrieving all the loot that has been burgled in the area recently, including Fenn's sprinting cup, and also including the cap that he'd left on their table. It takes him an awful long time, I think, to twig what had happened. So that plot line is all wrapped up. Now Kennedy and Fenn are the best of friends and are working together to improve their house's sporting prowess. Walton, the bad egg, has been packed off to a bank. Woodhouse using his first-hand knowledge to briefly describe his duties there. And he says, I'm aware that in a properly regulated story of school life, Walton would have gone to the Eccleton races, returned in a state of speechless intoxication and been summarily expelled. But facts are facts and must not be tampered with. Woodhouse again mocking other people's school stories and the clichés of the genre. Well, his own glass house, I would say. There were quite a lot of clichés and standard tropes in this book yes Kay has also left the school to be replaced with the more popular and sporty mr dencroft it's kind of a deus ex machina ending in that this external force the changing of the housemaster really takes away all the problems so now kennedy is head of dencroft's not head of Kay's. The then is much tedious, uh, wittering on about him licking the rugby team into shape, which can be of little interest to anyone, I would imagine. 
um, except people who are interested in the minutiae of school sport. Possibly, I find it less interesting than whipping the cricket team into shape because I'm more interested in cricket than rugby. But uh, hmm. I, I did not find this the next couple. I mean, it's standard public school novel writing, isn't it? In the end, Dencroft's losing the rugby final to Blackburn's, as predicted. But they weren't counting on it. The one they're hoping for is the athletics trophy or the sports trophy, as it's called here. And then that's the final chapter, the sports day. And the schoolhouse complacently assumes it will win. And they have the flashy players that tend to get the first place. But Dencroft tries to get as many second and third place as they can. And in the end, they just managed to win the trophy. And of course, it all comes down to the very last event. And of course, it's Kennedy running it. It's the long run, which is roughly five miles. And Kennedy wins it. And that's the end. Any final thoughts? Um, I think it's a good public school novel. I think that it's one of those ones where the jokes in it would have benefited with another revision and him, him going over it again. I don't think... It's that funny a book, certainly not, even compared to other of the works he was doing at the time, let Mm. alone his later works. And it's extremely sport-focused. For for someone without much interest in sport, I'm not quite sure how you managed to plod your way through it at the time. I can tolerate sport more in fiction, actually, because you remember when we were kids, I read all those sports comics. Yes. And I found them much more exciting than actual football games because there was a narrative there to follow and it didn't show you the boring bits. Yes. So although I did glaze over some of the details of the sports, the way he builds up tension and conflict, I quite enjoy. As I said, when I first read this, I wasn't terribly impressed by it. I preferred other public school stories. But reading it now, I, I like it more. I don't know why. Maybe because I see it in the context. I see it as just another stepping stone on the way to Smith and then to the grown-up books. Yeah, it's very similar to Mike, but just not as good. And I do like Jimmy Silver more than you do. So, Okay. It was a, a pleasure to um, go back and read a book from my childhood with an adult eye. Well, thank you, Josh, and thanks to all our listeners, and thank you to all of the Woodhouse scholars whose work has provided me with the background, particularly Norman Murphy and Robert McCrum. Thanks also to org, where one can find the magazine version of the story, amongst many other Woodhouse writings. You can get in touch with me at woodhousekeeping at com, or find me on social media at Woodhousekeeping on Facebook and Monty Podkin on the other place, whatever they call it nowadays. My pledge to you, I will never use the phrase the socials. Please like and subscribe and keep reading and buying P.G. Woodhouse. (laughs) 